The following message was given at Trinity Bible Church in Powell, Wyoming. Thanks for uh, for having me here this morning. I'm glad to be here. And again, uh, yeah, Brian and me have been friends for quite a while. I've actually known Doug longer. Uh, Doug and Lisa. We're not friends, but... Uh, no, it's great to be here. And uh, your church is growing quickly, I can see. Last time I was here, it was about half as many people. So praise the Lord for that. And and uh, thank Him for His blessing and what He's doing in, in the work here. So... Um, If you would, this morning, our text is Luke chapter 10. We're going to look at verses 25 through 37. And uh, one of the great things about preaching here is that uh, I can preach this sermon and it's not controversial at all because you've heard all of this uh, from your pastor, Brian uh, and Doug and Tim and uh, what we're going to do is we're going to look at a text that's uh, going to really serve to illustrate the power of God's word as it comes to us in what we could say are God's two words that are law and gospel. And uh, we're going to see how uh, law and gospel do this dual work. Uh, they put the old man or the old woman to death. They kill that person. And then the gospel comes and raises us up again to new life. So again, the text is Luke chapter 10, uh, looking at verses 25 through 37. And the text says this. And the lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How does it read to you? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied and said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, And fell among robbers, and they stripped him, and beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. And by chance a priest was going down on that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite also, when he came to the place, saw him pass by on the other side. But a Samaritan who was on a journey came upon him when he saw him. He felt compassion, and he came to him and bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them, and he put him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. On the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I return, I will repay you. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? And he said, the one who showed mercy toward him. Then Jesus said to him, go and do the same. Let's ask God to bless the preaching of his word here this morning. Our Father in heaven, as we come before you, we know, as the psalmist tells us, your word is a lamp to our feet. It is a light to our path. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces us to the very 
division of our soul and flesh, the very innermost being, your word goes deep and it exposes so much that is there that is not good. And it guides and directs us. We know that your word always accomplishes the purposes for which you sent it. And so this morning, Father, we put our hope and our trust not in ourselves, not in my capabilities as a preacher, uh, not even in the attentiveness of our own listening, but rather, Father, we depend on your word and your spirit to do the work in us that we cannot do for ourselves. And so we ask you to do this in Jesus' name. Amen. Back in uh, 2007, I'm looking at the clock. Brian told me I had two hours, so I want to make sure I don't go over that. Um, back in 2007, there was an Internet uh, site. It was kind of a news site called The Gawker. And they did a story, uh, and the title of the story was called The Worst Person in the World. And you may have heard of this guy if you're, if you're old enough to uh, go back to those times. but The gentleman who was awarded this title uh, goes by the name of John Fitzgerald Page. And John Fitzgerald Page is probably one of the best sermon illustrations out there. Uh, And and I encourage you guys who preach or are gifted to do so to use this illustration because it's applicable in all kinds of things. He, He illustrates something that's very important for us to understand as Christians. And that is the tendency of our own hearts to draw up a resume of our own righteousness in order to defend against others. We want to be accepted. We want to be brought into people's good graces. We want we want to live up to the expectations that others have for us. And John Fitzgerald Page does this. He wins this award because of what he said to a woman on the dating site Match.com. Now. Full disclosure, uh, dating sites I think existed when before I got married, but I never used one. They were, you know, they were pretty seedy back then. Not that they are now. Uh, so I, I will probably say something wrong about dating sites, and you younger millennials will probably laugh at that. And that's okay. Um, I just want you to get the point here. On dating sites, as I understand it, a lot like Facebook, uh, you you have profiles. And uh, you have these pictures, and then you have info about yourself, and people scan through them, and they say, hey, this, this looks like an interesting person, so I, I'm going to check it out here. Um, on Match.com, apparently, it had functions, or used to at least, uh, where you could wink or wave at a person that you were interested in. Okay, So what happens, one day, Fitzgerald Page, uh, whose profile name was Ivy League alum, It begins to tell you a little bit about him. He gets winked at by an unknown woman on on the dating site. And so Ivy League alum replies, and this is what he says. And there's there's this is exactly as it's written, verbatim, no introduction or anything. I live in a 31-story high-rise condominium, right in the middle of the Buckhead Nightlife District. You ever come to this area of town to shop or go out, visit, explore? I went to an Ivy League school, the University of Pennsylvania, for my undergraduate degree in economics and my graduate degree in management, Wharton School of Business. Where did you go to school? What activities do you currently participate in to stay in shape? This is what every lady wants 
to be asked, right? He says, I work out four times a week at LA Fitness. Do you exercise regularly? I am six feet tall, 185 pounds. What about yourself? I am truly sorry. No, he clarifies this. I am truly sorry if that sounds rude, impolite, or even downright crass, but I have been deceived before by inaccurate representations. So I prefer someone to be upfront and honest on initial contact. I do mergers and acquisitions, corporate finance for limited brands, Bath and Body Works, Victoria's Secret, etc. Do you enjoy any of our stores slash divisions? Do you have any other recent pictures you can share? I have many others, if you care to see them. Regards, John. I mean, this is a great guy. Um, as you think about the lady who's receiving this, you're probably wondering, how can this not work out? You know, he's got her. And uh, it, it's shocking that this woman responds and says, Thanks for writing to me, but unfortunately, we're not a good match. Good luck on your search. Well, John Fitzgerald Page just gave his resume of righteousness, but he only gave part of it. And now, having been rejected, having been shut down after such a wonderful attempt here, he replies, I think you forgot how this works. You hit on me, and therefore, you have to impress me and pass my criteria and standards, not vice versa. Six pictures of just your head and your inability to answer a simple question lets me know one thing. You are not in shape. I am a trainer on the side, in fact. I'm heading to the gym in 26 minutes. So the next time you meet a guy of my caliber, remember, instead of trying to turn it around, just get to the gym. I will even give you one free training session so that you don't blow it with the next 8.9 on hot or not Ivy League grad Mensa member. I keep many, meaning to look up what Mensa is. I, I forget every time. Mensa member can bench squat leg press over 1,200 pounds, has had lunch with the Secretary of Defense, has an MBA from the top school in the country, lives in a Buckhead high-rise, drives a Beamer convertible, has been in 14 major motion pictures, was in Jezebel's best dress, etc. Oh, that is right. There aren't any more of those. Poor girl. Um, so now you know. This is how John Fitzgerald Page wins uh, and becomes the proud owner of the Worst Person in the World uh, Award. And I like Page. Uh, I like Paige because I think Paige is honest. I think Paige truly spoke from his heart. And we value that in society, don't we? We want people to be real with us. And, and I like him because he perfectly illustrates why we need the law to put to death the sinful Pharisee inside of us. We need the law to shut us down. I don't want to be like that guy. The problem is we are like that guy, but we just keep it nice and squashed down. Perhaps we're a little more polite about that. Deep down inside, apart from God's grace in the law and the gospel, not only will we be that guy, 
we'll be worse than that guy. And I think that with minimal exceptions in this world, we could all line up and we could take that title away from John Fitzgerald Page. Right? Paul even admits this. I'm the chiefest of all sinners. There's, there's nobody worse than me. And that's because we are the undisputed champions of hypocrisy and pride when we try to live apart from God's word that does this work in us to kill our self-righteousness and to raise us to new life. Now the question is, what does that have to do with Luke chapter 10? It wasn't just a funny story. Um, Luke 10, verses 25 through 37, is a parable that, uh, I'm going to say this and I'll qualify it, uh, unfortunately you all know it. Unfortunately you all know it. And I don't want to uh, offend anyone unnecessarily this morning when I say this. I'm going to preach this in a way that you've probably never heard it before. This will be quite different from the way it's usually taught and preached. And what I'm not saying here is I'm the only one who's ever figured out the passage and you just have to listen to me. Just saying there's a way in which this is taught. I grew up hearing it this way. There's probably some point in my life where I taught it in this way, where there's this tendency for us to confuse the law and the gospel. And to make this text into something that it's not. Jesus has something that's extremely important that he wants to say to us here this morning. Uh, It's vital for our lives. It's vital for this lawyer and what he has to say here. And, And very often that point is entirely missed because we use this text to fill up and to bolster our resume of righteousness. So what I'll do first is tell you how it's typically taught. And you can probably uh, associate with this. A guy comes to Jesus, this lawyer, fairly well-to-do guy, um, and he has a question for Jesus about the law. What does the law say I should do? What does the law tell me to do? And then as it's usually taught, Jesus will respond and say, well, what do you think it tells you to do? And what, 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 how do you read this thing? What does it tell you? And the guy, uh, who's a lawyer and educated, and obviously has studied the scripture some, he, he looks at Jesus and he says, well, basically this, it says I'm to love God and to love my neighbor. And it's a great answer. Jesus says, yeah, yeah, you've got it. That's great. Uh, that's what you need to do. That's how you understand the law. But then the lawyer replies, and he says, well, for clarity's sake, just so I know what's really going on here, so I really understand this whole, uh, this whole standard that you've given me, who's my neighbor? Explain to me who my neighbor is. You know, because I'm not really sure. I'm not really sure who I have to love. I know who God is, right? I'm a good Jewish Lawyer, I I know who God is. That's easy. I've got to love him. But who constitutes my neighbor? And then, as it's again usually taught, Jesus just shocks him by saying, uh, your neighbor is not just the person you like. Uh, It's not just your buddy down the road. or It's not even just like the people sitting in your synagogue or your church. Um, But your neighbor is actually your worst enemy. 
Your worst enemy is your neighbor. That's you know the whole Samaritan and the Jews gets played up, and that whole dispute goes on. And, and the Sunday school teacher will talk about it quite a bit. And, and it's at this point that usually that that final exhortation of the Sunday school teacher or the preacher goes something like this: You need to love not just your friend, but you need to love your neighbor, and your neighbor is everyone who you find in need. Even your worst enemy, you're to love them. And that's what the parable's about. Now, just a couple of things. First, you are called to love your neighbor as yourself. And you are called to love your enemy, even your worst enemy. Um, that, that's very clear. That's the sum of the law. Uh, I think the question, though, is how are you doing with that? How are you doing loving your neighbor as yourself, even your worst enemy? Um, you know, the, the question really comes down to, are we pulling that off? Have we ever accomplished that? Now, maybe in momentary situations we have done that, but we have not done that perfectly. Um, I can assure you of that. Uh, if I spent the next 30 minutes, well, I guess I got two hours, right? So hour and 45 minutes, just telling you, uh, clarifying that you have a duty to love your neighbor as yourself, and your, your neighbor includes even your worst enemy. And if I just tell you over and over, that's what you need to do, do you think that will motivate you to actually do it? Right? You know the law, and you know that you're not doing it. And so me taking this parable and saying, here's the point. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love even your boss that you can't stand. Love that person that you've hated since childhood. Treat them with kindness and love them. That's the law of God. And you say, well, just clarify who it is, and then I'll be able to do it. Again, we know the parable too well, and that's the problem, uh, because I, I think we've missed the major point. Um, if I clarify to you who your neighbor is, does that equip us? Does that motivate us? Does that drive us to loving our neighbor as ourselves? Well, the problem with, with teaching the parable that way is that that was never the point that Jesus was trying to make. It was never the point at all. Notice this in verse 25. And a lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? That's the question. What do I do to inherit eternal eternal life? The question was never, Jesus, I, I know the law, but I need you to clarify it for me. Who do I actually have to love in this whole deal? That wasn't his question. Uh, the question Jesus is answering is, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? In other words, how can I get to heaven? How can I avoid hell? Uh, what and, and you notice what he's saying here. What do I have to do? What do I have to do in order to get to heaven? So Jesus gives him an answer. Verses 26 and 27, he says, What is written in the law? How does it read to you? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, 
and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Uh, I assume most of you, if not all of you, have probably grown up in the church. I praise the Lord for the people who haven't uh, in a lot of ways because uh, passages like this, you don't carry the baggage with them. Um, One of the unfortunate consequences of growing up in the church and the importance of good teaching and a law gospel distinction in teaching is, is that we... We have this familiarity with texts that breeds contempt. And we, we kind of don't like to hear that old way we were taught being, you know, that actually that was wrong and, and here's what it was all about. Um, I, I, I think we know this too well because what Jesus says there in verse 28 should shock us. And, and I would even ask you this morning to conjure up a little bit of shock and awe at what Jesus says there in verse 28. The guy comes to Jesus and says, how do I get to heaven? And Jesus looks at the guy and he says, keep the law. You've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. In fact, what Jesus is doing is he's he's quoting from Leviticus 18 that says, so you shall keep my statutes and my judgments by which a man shall live if he keeps them. I am the Lord. Right, this is the worst news ever. Uh, why would Jesus say this? Why would Jesus say this to this man? Uh, this goes against everything that we know the New Testament to teach. Well, you notice in verse 29, he, the guy goes on, but wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Here's where we miss the whole point of the parable. And we think it's all about the question of who's my neighbor. But the question, who is my neighbor, is only asked in order to clarify the means of the first question, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? That's all it is. It's a clarification. Okay, you told me to keep the law. Now let's just let's clarify who's my neighbor. You notice his motive there in verse 29, and this is signaling to us what Jesus is doing. Wishing to justify himself. In other words, how can I justify myself before God according to the law? If I've got to do this and live, Jesus, you've got to give me clarification because I intend to do it. I intend to go out and and create my own resume of righteousness by which God would look at me and say, he has done this, now you may have eternal life. I'll present to God my accomplishments, and I'll be accepted, and I will be declared righteous, not just by God, but by everybody around me. They'll all look at me and see my righteousness. What Jesus does in the parable is he awards the lawyer the title of the worst person in the world. That's the point of the parable. I'll tell you what you have to do. You have to obey the law perfectly in every respect. And and if you do this, you can inherit eternal life by your own works. Perfect, perfect obedience. Again. 
This is bad news. Uh, this, this is not what we want to hear. Uh, this, this, in fact, is the worst news ever. This is the kind of news that drives us to despair. When we are turned back upon ourselves to accomplish something we can't do, this is what drives us to despair. It's the kind of news that the Apostle Paul calls the ministry of death. The law is a ministry of death. And what, what that means is that the law comes in and it kills the old Adam or the old Eve, the self-righteousness in us that tries to cover up our shame, that tries to cover up our iniquities with the fig leaves of our own accomplishments while we're hiding in the garden from God. That, that's what the law does. It kills us from thinking that we've actually got things together. So, Let's apply this just so far, where we're at here. To gain eternal life, to justify yourself before God, Jesus says to this man, you have to keep the law. Now, if, if we're going to really think about this, the question now is, how are we doing? How are we doing keeping the law? Uh, I always find this interesting, uh, and I'll use a story from my church uh, to kind of explain this. I, we recently had this guy um, who had just stopped a 20-year methamphetamine addiction. And uh, what had happened is his friend had died of an overdose. Um, I'm trying to think of the name of the drug, uh, fentanyl, uh, had got mixed into that, that drug somehow. And, and as they were using meth together, uh, his, friend, his friend suddenly died. And it was, it was because they'd put this fentanyl in the drug. And um, he said this scared him terrified him so much that he decided he needed to start coming to church. And as I talked to him, he kept saying things to me like, you know, I'm, I'm really a good person. Deep, deep down inside, I'm a good person. I'm not like those other, those other drug addicts who are violent and mean and, and all that. that. That's not the way I, I have used drugs. I actually, he would tell me repeatedly, I, I actually have a good heart. My heart's really well well off. I'm, I'm not like bad people. And as I began finding out more about his life and, and conversing with him, uh, well, he had gotten divorced, and this was a significant thing in his life, and he got divorced because he was beating his wife and children. Uh, he was thrown into prison for this. Uh, he, he gets out of prison, racks up multiple felonies, um, from theft and assault and drug, and so he's in and out of prison and jail and everything else. And, and as I'm hearing this from the guy, amazingly, his assessment of, him, of, of himself was that he was a good guy. Like deep down inside, I'm a good guy. I've made a few mistakes along the way, but God's going to go easy on me because I know that I'm good. I know there's something about me that, that's not bad. And this parable is for guys like that, but it's also for guys and gals like us, who in that moment where we think of ourselves, as Martin Luther would put it, we, we live out of the theologian of glory who's in us. The theologian of glory is the one who thinks that our works can be acceptable to God unto righteousness. We need parables like this that will take that thought that we are good 
and throw them away. Put that theologian of glory to death. So let's do that. Let's let the word of God do its work. Verse 30, Jesus replied and said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers, and they stripped him and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. Okay, as you go through parables in your Bible and and you hear them preach, parables typically have this this application where as as you're going through it, you're supposed to be asking yourself, Okay, who am I in the parable? Right, think of it like the parable of the seeds, right? Are you the, the seed that's on the rocky ground? Are you the seed that's on the fruitful ground? Who am I in the parable? Who am I supposed to be in the parable? And then finally, who does Jesus say I am in the parable? Okay, so you notice the difference there. Who am I in the parable as it pertains to right now in this moment? Who am I supposed to be in the parable? And who does Jesus say that I am? In the parable. And so right now we have the main character, and he's this guy. Uh, he's a man on a journey who gets robbed and beaten, and he's left half dead in a ditch. That's our first character. Verse 31 goes on. And by chance a priest was going down on that road, and when he saw him, the guy in the ditch, he passed by on the other side. So we have a priest who can't be bothered, um, he's too busy. He's too important. He's got things to do. Um, he, he can't stop. He can't help this guy. And so he doesn't just go by him. He actually goes to the other side of the road. Right? He purposely avoids the situation and continues on his way. Okay, verse 32 goes on. Likewise, a Levite also, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. So. Uh, a Levite, you could say an assistant to the priesthood. Think of this, you have another fine, upstanding religious citizen in, in Israel. And uh, it seems as though um, he's just busy as well. He's got things to do, um, people to see, and he's got to move on. So he also goes to the other side of the road and, and heads on his way. Okay, next character in verse 33. But a Samaritan who was on a journey came upon him, and when he saw him, he felt compassion. All right, here's the guy, right? The good Samaritan. I mean, they even named ministries after this guy. He's he's fairly uh, fairly well known. Um, Not a fine, upstanding citizen, right? And you all know this part. Uh, He's he's generally considered by the Jews to just be a rotten fellow because of all the history between the Jews and the Samaritans. But what we note here is what what the text says about him. He felt compassion, right? He felt uh, moved to express love and to express mercy to this guy who's half dead and beaten and laying in the ditch, okay? So what does he do? Where does his compassion lead? Verses 34 and 35. And came to him and bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them. And he put him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. On the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him and whatever more you spend, when I return, I will repay you. I want you to notice six things 
about the Good Samaritan. He has compassion. He binds up wounds. He carries him. He takes him to an inn to be cared for. He pays his debt. And he promises to return. This is why it's great preaching at Brian's church, because you all know where I'm going with this, right? Uh, there's no question who we're talking about. You just have to enjoy the ride now. Right? It's like like any question you ask in church, the answer is always Jesus. You know, like I had to drive to, to Dave and Joanna's house last night and I told asked Brian, you know, how do I get there? What's what's the way to their house? And he said, Jesus is the way, the truth and the life. And I said, Well what what about the house I have to get to? He said, In my father's house there are many mansions. I'd forget it. I'll just look it up on Google. No, he didn't say that. But um, uh, so, so, so we move through here. Um, uh, verses 36 and 37. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? And he said to him, the one who showed mercy toward him. Then Jesus said to him, go and do the same. Okay. The last thing said here, go and do the same. What does that answer? And what it's answering is the question. Well, it's answering both questions. What must I do to inherit eternal life by my own works? And who is my neighbor in order that I can do those works? What you need to see here in this text, Jesus is not saying, here's here's a really good way to live the Christian life. Uh, it, it, It would be really nice if all of you would start loving your neighbor as yourself and loving your enemy and doing this, and that you would go out and do it and by it merit eternal life. This is not moral directive here. Okay, This is where we have to understand the uses of the law. That the first use of the law is to condemn the sinner. It's to drive them to desperation, to see that we have no righteousness in and of ourselves. And Jesus is not in this parable telling you, get on the ball with loving your neighbor as yourself. This is what you've got to do. And and the point's right here. Loving your worst enemy is the fulfillment of this law. Now, as you picture your worst enemy, and you see them in a ditch, half dead, And you're called now to love that person in order to get to heaven. You've got to love them in order to get to heaven. Does that motivate you to love them? Well, it should in a sense, right? But unfortunately, it doesn't. It doesn't. It doesn't make me want to love them anymore. You notice what the lawyer doesn't do here. Just as a side note. The lawyer doesn't even ask about clarification for loving God. Why is that? Well, he wants to justify himself. He he wants to get to heaven through his own works. And and so let's, you know, let's leave God out of this one. Because, uh, you know, loving God is probably one of the hardest things you'll ever do in the Christian life. And that's what the power of the Holy Spirit working in your heart and mind to create love. For God. And it's still one of the hardest things we do. But our neighbor, you know, uh, I like my neighbor. My neighbor is like genuinely one of the coolest dudes I know. 
Um, he's in the army, and uh, and he drives a, a super cool truck, and um, and we help each other out. Like he's he's got tractors and will dig stuff for me when we need it done, and we we help with snow removal and all that. And um, and he's he's great. Like it's no problem to love that guy. Um, we can have barbecues together, right? This is going to be awesome. This is how I get to heaven is just loving this guy. You know, well, Christmas cookies will come around. We'll pass those out. and We'll, we'll hang out in the backyard and, and eat food. And, and this is a great way to get to heaven. Loving the guy that's my neighbor, that, that who couldn't love him? The lawyer wants to be confirmed in his own works of righteousness, and Jesus does the opposite. He kills him with the law. He kills him. Your neighbor is your worst enemy. It's the person you can't stand. It's the person whose very existence offends you. It's the person, in fact, who who is an immoral, unclean, false religionist. You don't just hate him. You hate his parents. You hate his grandparents and their parents and anyone that could possibly be associated with them so that if you saw them in the ditch dying half dead, this would be uh, your greatest wish being granted, that you finally got rid of that person. You'd never have to see them again. I had a professor in seminary who told this story. Um, he was out skateboarding. I hate to even say that. Um, he's a professor at Cambridge, so he's legitimate. But uh, he was out skateboarding, and he's, he's going along, and he goes over this speed bump. And uh, on the other side of the speed bump was a two-by-four that had fallen out of the back of a truck or something. So he's skating along, and he goes over it, and he hits this two-by-four, and he crashes terribly. Just lands on the ground, and he's hurt, and he's laying on the side of the path. And he says, I had to get out of the road, so I rolled over, and I roll over into this ditch. And um, he's laying there wondering you know, what happened, and and if anybody saw what happened, because he's going to need some help, like seriously injured. And uh, sure enough, he says, I hear this guy coming before I saw him. You know, the the swishy pants that people jog in? He says he heard the squish, squish, squish of the swishy pants, and he goes, oh, thank the Lord, somebody's coming. And sure enough, this guy runs by, looks at him in the ditch, doesn't even slow down, and says, right on, man, and just keeps going. And uh, he said to himself, oh, man, I know this story. This is the story of the Good Samaritan. I've just got to wait. I've got to wait for the third person. He goes, I can still hear the guy swishing pants. And this big, huge suburban pulls up with a mom and her kids. And and she kind of goes over the bump in the board, looks down at me, honks her horn twice, and drives away. And he goes, great. Great. Next person who comes by is going to help. Next person who comes by is going to do it. And no one came by. Nothing happened because this is the point of the parable. There is no good Samaritan. There is no good Samaritan because we don't love our neighbors like that. We never have loved our neighbors like that probably never will. 
If you want to justify yourself by loving your neighbor, you can't do it because no one does this. We can't even love our spouses. Isn't that incredible? We can do it occasionally, but as far as a consistent, always loving them, always sacrificing for them, we can't do it. Our children, right? This is that I have I have four young kids. We're we're going through the ringer now, as a lot of you are, I see. Uh, and you're learning this whole thing just about how really prideful and self-centered you actually are. It's so hard to love your kids in the moments of their greatest needs. Uh, our children will be in trouble and we will turn to the other side and go around and ignore them because we need a break. We're tired. You know, we need to get away for a moment. We can't love our church. I mean, it's like it's a joke about how evangelical churches split up and break up and fight and argue with each other. We can't even love each other sitting in this room. We do, as long as the person's meeting our covenant of works, right? As long as you're living up to my expectations, I'll love you, and you can be my friend, and, and, and I'll, I'll do things for you. But the moment you break uh, the requirements that I have for you, then I cut you off, you're no longer my friend, and I can't have anything to do with you. We can't love our neighbors, our coworkers. When, when people that we love, we proclaim to love, have a need, we go to the other side of the road. We don't want to deal with it. In the church especially, we hate it when people are hurting. We're supposed to come in the door and they say, how are you doing today? And we say, I'm doing wonderful. And then we go into the church and everybody's wonderful. And the reality is nobody's doing wonderful because we live in this present evil age. But we're so obsessed with ourselves that we can't take a moment to really show love and care and concern for others. That's the point of the parable. When we see our enemy in the ditch, we don't go help them. We cheer. Right? I mean, think about it this way. How many politicians have we seen lose an election and we cheer for that? or get into some form of trouble, or even die. I, mean, I remember uh, politicians in the past would die of the party that's not supposed to be our party, and we cheer about it. The point of the parable is this. You are not the Good Samaritan. You will never be the Good Samaritan because you've already failed. You've already failed to keep the law. And therefore, you cannot justify yourself by your own works and your own righteousness because you can't love your enemies. Furthermore, you can't even love your friends. We are arrogant. We are self-willed. We're motivated by pride and greed. I told the story of John Fitzgerald Page because, again, when I read that story, it's not that I see some horrible guy out there. Now, he says some dumb things, uh, but I see myself who when I face rejection from others, I want to instantly, here's my works, here's my righteousness, now accept me because I'm better than anyone else you've ever known. Our only desire for ourselves is that acceptance, that recognition, 
through a resume of our own accomplishments. And, and, and so as we ask, like, who am I in the parable? We are everyone in the parable except for the Good Samaritan. We're the robber. We're the priest. We're the Levite. But in this moment right now, if the Spirit of God is working in our hearts and our minds, and you know you know this if you're if you know it, most of all, you're the man in the ditch that Jesus put there, that Jesus beat to death and threw in the ditch with his law. And if no one comes to save you, if no one comes to pull you out of that ditch and rescue you, you will perish in your sins. You will not inherit eternal life. You see what the law does? The law strips us naked. The law tears away all the fig leaves of our works and it exposes us before God for what we really are. And it leaves us without this false security. What must I do to inherit eternal life? It beats you to death with a covenant of works that you cannot fulfill and you're left in the ditch to die as a result. But lying in the ditch, knowing that no one is coming, knowing there is no good Samaritan amongst any of us, the question changes. It changes from what must I do to inherit eternal life to is there a good Samaritan who will come and rescue me? Is there someone, is there anyone who can now come and help me? Will someone come and feel compassion for me in my miserable state? Will someone come and bandage my wounds and pour oil on and, and wine on them and make me better? Will someone come and carry me to a safe place where I can rest, where I can recover, where I can heal? Will someone pay my debts? Will they take care of my debts so that I don't have to worry about any of that? Will someone come back one day to receive me unto themselves into their loving arms for all of eternity? Will someone come and do that? You see, the point of the parable is this. Before Christ can come and rescue you, you have to be in the place where God is your only hope. Where there is no works left for you. The law is the instrument to get you there. It's the instrument to put you in that ditch so that you can hear this. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds we are healed. Here's the good news. There is one who will cross the road. There is one who is moved by compassion, who sees miserable sinners in the ditch, half dead, beat to death by the law. There is one who binds up wounds. There is one who picks you up and who will carry you to safety. 
There is one who will pay all of your debts, all of them. And there is one who is going to come back one day. And he's going to bring you into his loving arms forever and ever and never let you go again. But it's not you. It's not, it's certainly not me. It's the one who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Luther said the law is a divine Hercules sent to attack and to kill the monster of self-righteousness. Isn't that a great quote? To attack and to kill the monster of self-righteousness. But after you've died in that ditch, after the law has killed you, Jesus comes and he rescues you. The gospel, see how the law does. The law kills us. It puts us into the ditch. What the gospel is, it's the funeral service preached over our grave by which we are brought to new life again. So that as you read this parable now, and you see, I can't do this. I can't love my neighbor. I can't love my worst enemy. By my works, I cannot make it into heaven. The gospel comes and says, Jesus did it all for you. Jesus is your good Samaritan. Now, there's a second application on this, though. After you have been brought out of that ditch, after Jesus has rescued you, and you're sitting in your inn waiting for him to return, and maybe you go out and wander around because you're feeling good, and you look and you see that person lying in the ditch. Now you're motivated to go do good works. Now you're motivated to move in compassion and mercy out of the mercy that you have received first from God. So that's the point of Luke 10, 25 through 37. Let's close in prayer. Our Father in heaven, as we come before you and uh, in light of your word, I ask you that our hearts would be changed. I ask you that we would see Christ. And in seeing more of him, we would be changed more and more to his image and likeness. I pray that Christ would reign in our hearts, Father, as today your law does its work in putting to death our self-righteousness and raising us up to new life. God in heaven, we praise you for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And without Christ, we have nothing. And so our worship flows out of our great gratitude because you have done for us what we could not do for ourselves. And so we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. You have been listening to a message from Trinity Bible Church in Powell, Wyoming. To receive more information about Trinity Bible Church or to support the ministry, go to tbcwyoming.com. That is tbcwyoming.com.